Amen. Thank you, worship team. Children, you are now dismissed for Children's Church. Everyone else, let's take our Bibles and we're going to open together to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we're going to talk about faith that perseveres. In other words, faith that lasts to the end. Faith that that proves itself true. Faith that ends up in eternity with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so in James chapter 5, that's right, we're going to make our way through the entirety of chapter 5. We're going to be here so long that Mr. James is going to be throwing that clock at me. And uh, we're all going to survive anyway. So James chapter 5, faith that perseveres in all Honesty, we are going to try to make our way through the entirety of chapter five, and so we're going to be we're going to be moving quickly as we make our way through the text. We're not going to hit every single detail, but I wanted to get through all of James chapter five because I've got something different planned for next Sunday morning. So James chapter five, what we're going to see in the text is five truths concerning faith that perseveres to the end. So here's what we're going to do: we're going to read verses one through six. We're going to pause. We're going to pray, and then we're going to make our way through the text, and we'll just kind of read the sections as we come to them, moving throughout the sermon. So James chapter 5, look with me in verse 1, where James begins, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you have kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pause and let's pray as we make our way through the sermon. Lord, we thank you for all that you are doing in our midst. We thank you for the ways in which you are working in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity the last couple of weeks that we've had to, to really focus on and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through his death and through his resurrections. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been given the opportunity for newness of life and eternity in heaven. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we've been able to, to worship you and to study that and to remember that the last couple of weeks. Lord, we're also thankful for the opportunity this morning to get back to the book of James. Lord, what an incredible book this has been. It has encouraged and challenged us in our faith. And so, Lord, I pray that as we wrap this up this morning, Lord, that we would see what it takes to have faith that perseveres to the end. Faith that works and continues to work to bring about your glory and to bring about your will in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and through us this morning. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. So, James chapter 5 brings us to the conclusion of the letter that James has written to the church. Remember, this has been a, a long letter filled with lots of difficult topics and difficult conversations. James is an incredibly practical book, which is really helpful for us. But James is really burdened that we would live out our faith, that we would have faith that works. Faith that does not work, James says, is dead and is not saving faith. And so James is really challenging the church to make sure that your faith is being lived out in your daily life. And if it's not, then James says that is a major, major problem that you need to address because it may very well be that your faith is dead, is not saving faith, and therefore you don't actually have faith to begin with. And so that's really been what James has been trying to do from the very beginning of this letter. And that's where he's going to sort of end it in chapter 5. What James is trying to get us to see is that genuine faith, faith that works, is faith that lasts. Faith that perseveres. It's actually exactly what Jesus told us in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower. Faith that is genuine faith is faith that produces fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Genuine faith continues to prove itself throughout our lives. And so that's what James is trying to address. The problem is the world is hard and full of difficulties. And so how can we demonstrate faith through all of that? How can we persevere to the end when we know already life is difficult? Life is terrible sometimes. Amen. 
So how can our faith persevere through all that life is going to throw at it? Well, James is going to give us five ways or five truths concerning faith that perseveres to the end. First of all, faith that perseveres to the end is faith that trusts in the justice of God. So faith that perseveres is faith that trusts in the justice of God. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 5, it becomes pretty clear that James is no longer addressing the church. Notice that he nowhere in verses 1 through 6 talks to the brothers as he so often does throughout the rest of this letter. It appears that James is addressing the culture that the church exists within. And so, for example, we are the church here at Corinth, right? We we represent the body of Christ. We are a local body of believers, and we represent the larger body of believers that is the big C, capital C church that has existed for all uh, of, 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 of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and will exist until the day he comes back through all of eternity. We represent the church, but we exist within a culture that is around us. Right? And the culture that is around us is not a culture that is loving towards the church, especially not any longer. Right? You can go back 50 years and you can find the culture much more appreciative of the church, maybe even what we consider to be sort of a Christian culture 50 to 100 years ago. But we are now living in a times where the church is barely being tolerated. And we are certainly headed towards times where the church will no longer be tolerated in our society, right? And so James is writing to the culture around the church. And he's writing to the culture around the church that is living within the temporary satisfactions of the world. Remember where we've come out of in chapters 3 and 4. James has been warning us, do not fall into the trap of worldliness. Don't be friends with the world, instead be friends of God. In other words, don't be swayed by the temporary satisfactions of this world. Instead, live for the eternal glory of God. And so what James begins to do is he's addressing the culture in verses 1 through 6. And in verse 6, he's going to bring the church back into the conversation and then really help us out in verses 7 through 11. And so notice what James says to the church or says to the, to the culture around. He says, you rich people, you who are living in love with the world, he says, it's time for you to weep and howl for the miseries that you deserve are coming upon you. He says, culture, get ready. Judgment is coming. Amen. Judgment is coming. And then he gives us four reasons as to why judgment is coming upon the culture. First, James tells them that they were hoarding wealth when that wealth could have been used to help others that were in need. So here's what James says, first of all, to the rich. He says, you have done a great job of hoarding so much wealth and so much stuff that your stuff, instead of being used, is rotting and is wasting away. He says, all your fancy garments are being eaten by moth. Your gold and your silver is corroding. Now, something interesting here in the text is if you know anything about gold, gold doesn't actually corrode, right? And so some commentators have looked at that and said, aha, James didn't know what he was talking about. No, James is being sarcastic. He's using hyperbole. He's saying that even that which is incorrodible is corroding because you've had it for so long and you haven't used it. James says, you've got a problem. You're storing up wealth that could very well be used to meet the needs of others. I'll never forget hearing the testimony of of one pastor that was preaching through this book and he, he came to this text, he came to this idea and he took a hard look at his church's financial situation and budget. And he looked at their budget and he realized that in their budget they had stored up, let's just say $500,000 that they were saving for a rainy day. Right, And as he looked at their budget, as he looked at this text, as he examined his heart and the heart of the church, he looked at the society around him and he realized that it was raining all around them. There were people dying without Christ all around them. It was raining and those funds were just being destroyed. They were gaining wealth, but they were being used for nothing. Now, I'm not saying that having a checking account or a savings account is a bad idea. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that having a rainy day fund for you personally or even for the church corporately is a bad idea. 
What I'm saying is that we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of the world, which is we get really secure in accumulating a lot of stuff because it makes us feel safe. And what we find is we're trusting in our stuff instead of trusting in the Lord. And what James is condemning the rich for is the rich have been looking at those around them that are in need. They've been ignoring them, even abusing them, we will see, in order to accumulate more stuff. Right? Now, we just had a yard sale at our house. We are guilty of accumulating stuff. Right? We, everybody's guilty of accumulating too much stuff. Amen? All you got to do is, is walk into that one room or look in that one corner of a building or look at the building as a whole. Right? Now, a lot of our stuff is stuff that's just corroding because it's junk and that's okay. That's different. But what James says is don't fatten your bank accounts. Don't accumulate wealth trusting in it. Trust in the justice of God. And use that which God has given you to bless and take care of those who are in need. Amen? And so James says the rich are going to be condemned. They're going to be judged because they were hoarding wealth. Secondly, he says you're going to be condemned because they were cheating their workers. Notice that in verse 4. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud. They're crying out against you. He says you've been dishonest. He says to the culture, not the church, to the culture. You've, you've taken advantage of others. You've cheated others. You, you've not paid what is a fair wage. He says you, you, you've been dishonest in order to gain more. Then thirdly, he says that while others were suffering, they were living in luxury and self-indulgence. Notice that in verse 5. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. He says you've fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with nice things. There's nothing wrong with with, with treating yourself from time to time. I'm not saying there is. What I'm saying is that their fault was that they were living in luxury and in self-indulgent, not only at the expense of others, but because their only focus was self. That's what it means to be self-indulgent. Is you do everything you can to please yourself, to take care of yourself with little to no care for those around you. That's the problem. The problem isn't that the Lord blesses people and they're able to have luxurious things. That's not the problem. The problem is when your focus is only on you and not on those around you who are in need. James says, you're, you're going to be judged. Miseries are about to fall upon you because you've been so focused on you, you haven't cared about others. Uh, the, the phrase that kind of came to my mind was they were fat and happy, but far from Christ. Right? They were self-indulgent. They were doing everything to please themselves, but they were far removed from Christ. And then fourthly, James said that they condemned and murdered the righteous. Notice that in verse 6. He says, you've condemned and you've murdered the righteous person. How? By keeping back what they needed. Now, here's what I love about verse 6. That's where we come into play. Verses 1 through 5, he's addressing the, the lost culture around the church. And in verse 6, he, he speaks about the righteous. Who's the righteous? Us. Because we're so good? No, because we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Amen? That's why we can claim to be the righteous. It's not because we're good people. It's because we are righteous, because we've been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's where we come into play. That's where we're introduced to the story. He says, you have been ridiculed, you've been persecuted, you've been mistreated, you've been cheated out of things, you've been condemned, you've been hurt. And what James is telling the culture around what he's warning them is that judgment is coming. As a matter of fact, listen to the phrases again used. The evidence of their wickedness will be used against them as in court of law. The cries of the oppressed have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts who is standing ready to judge the wicked. You ever been in a situation where, where you're kind of a parent? You're sort of in the background. You're, you're like at a playground. You're at a kid's event, whatever it is. And you're sort of in the background. So you're kind of unnoticed by the children. And, and you, you're watching your child. That's why you're there. You're not just there to hang out. You're watching your child. And you notice another child being mean or rude to your kid. Right? Kind of, kind of get yourself in that mindset. That, that's, use your imagination if you've never been in that situation. And as you're standing there, you're, you're watching this unfold. You're listening to someone say something uh, rude or hurtful or hateful to your child. And when you hear it, what happens? 
fix that in a hurry. Amen. That's the picture we get. The picture is that our cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And guess what he's about to do? Something about it. Amen. He's standing at the door. He's ready to, to seek vengeance that is rightfully his. He's ready to right the wrong. He's ready to bring about his justice in his timing. And so faith that perseveres to the end is faith that trusts in the justice of God. It's faith that avoids the temptations and the falls of the rich. And I want you to be clear or aware. I want us to be warned. While we might not consider ourselves rich, the vast majority of the world would consider us rich. I I know that. I've experienced it. I've been there. And in most other countries, countries that we've ever visited, we have certainly been the wealthy, right? Only one place I've, I've ever been where I felt like I was not wealthy compared to those around me, that was Dubai, the richest country in the world. But when you look past the enormous skyscrapers to the other folks, they have an upper, upper class, and then they have the lowest of the low class, and there's really nothing in between, We are rich as Americans compared to almost any other country in the world. And so what we have to do is we have to be careful, not just as believers, but as believers in America, that we don't fall for the trap of the American dream, which is let's accumulate wealth and trust in our wealth instead of trusting in our God. There's very few other places in the world where having a rainy day fund is a concept a church would have. Most other places in the world, it's called let's try to make ends meet fund. Let's try to survive. And let's try to do all we can today for the glory of God and to exalt the name of Jesus. Again, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm saying we got to be careful that our motivation isn't to trust in stuff, that our motivation is to trust in the justice of God. Amen? And so... James says, faith that perseveres, trust in the justice of God. And then secondly, faith that perseveres is patient in suffering. So in verse 6, he introduces the righteous us to the equation, we're suffering. So what do we do in the midst of our suffering? Well, James tells us, picking up in verse 7, I want you to listen to the repetition of the word patience, endurance, and steadfast. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Notice the term brothers. Now we're in the conversation. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. Excuse me. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what are we supposed to do in light of our suffering? We're supposed to be patient in suffering. Now, let's be honest, that's not what we hope to hear. Amen? Like, we're in the the midst of suffering. We want justice. We want a remedy. We want it to be over. We want it fixed now. We don't want to be told, be patient in suffering. Right? That's not at all what we want to... Sometimes I feel like we're, we're on the phone with the Lord, and we're waiting for the Lord's timing, and all we hear is that elevator music in the background. Right? And we're like, this... Is taking forever, Lord. And God's saying, be patient. Be patient in the midst of your suffering. How? By trusting in the justice of God. Amen? God's at work. God is moving. And so we got to be patient. Thankfully, James gives us three examples highlighting different aspects of how God is working through our suffering to give us examples of why we ought to be patient. First, we see that we're to be patient like the farmer. The farmer plants the crop, and then the farmer waits for the rain, and he must be patient. Notice the farmer has no control over the rain, but must wait, trusting in God. You plant the crop, right? Now, we've done all we can with modern technology and pumps and all kind of stuff to try to be able to control the rain, right? 
But no matter how much we advance, no matter how many pipes we put in rivers, no matter how many ways we try to irrigate on our own, if the Lord doesn't provide the rain, the crop is going to fail, die. But who controls the rain? God. Not the farmer. Right? Not the farmer. And so what's that teaching us? It's teaching us to trust in the timing of God and to trust in the faithfulness of God. The farmer plants, he waits. He waits until the early rain, and then he's got to wait until the later rain. He's got to trust that God is going to provide continually over the course of the process so that he can then bring in the harvest. And what James tells us is that as we are waiting on the Lord, God is using that weight to increase our faith and our trust in him. And so he says, be patient like the farmer. But then he tells us to be patient like the prophets. We must be patient like the prophets. This helps us see that as we wait, we still proclaim the gospel and serve the Lord. Listen, as believers, we wait on the Lord, but we don't sit and wait on the Lord. We work while we're waiting on the Lord. That's what the prophets did. The prophets kept proclaiming the glories of God. They kept enduring persecution, but they kept proclaiming the glories of God. They kept proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. And they were waiting on God to work. They were waiting on God to move. They were waiting on the people to have revival and respond. But they didn't just sit back and wait. They kept proclaiming the words of the Lord. And that's the kind of patience that we're supposed to have. We're patiently waiting on God to work, but we are working while we wait. Amen? We're working for the glory of God. We are proclaiming the words of God. We are sharing the gospel. We're doing all that God has commanded us to do in his word. We are working while we wait. And so our patience isn't a sit back and do nothing kind of patience. It's a be patient in how God's going to bring about his will. And so as we wait, we wait for the Lord, but we work while we wait. And then third, he says that we must be patient like Job. Well, again, that's not what we want to hear. Amen? If you've never read the story of Job, first of all, the name's not Job, it's Job. Right? And it's the story of a man who appears to be doing well, not only in life, but well for the Lord. He's the servant of the Lord. He's faithful in the beginning of the book. And the the devil comes into the throne room of heaven and asks God, if you really want to prove how unfaithful your servant will be let me put some pressure on him let me test him and you'll see that after i test him that his faith will be nothing and he'll condemn you and die and the lord allows satan to bring about that kind of tragedy in job's life and if you read through the entire book of job it is not a heartwarming story it's not a story where you come away saying i want to be like job when i grow up you come away from it going lord please don't ever do that in my life Job loses all of his children. He loses all of his wealth. He loses everything that he possesses. He loses everything in two, except for his wife and his three friends who are terrible friends, who all tell him to curse God and die, who, who, who just, just give him awful advice all throughout the entire book of Job. And at the end of it, God reveals his purposes to Job after all the suffering has been endured. And so when James says to be patient like Job, he's saying, even when you don't understand the purposes of God, trust that God is working. Trust that God has a reason. Trust that God is going to work in spite of your suffering. He's going to work through your suffering, and he's going to reveal his purposes in his timing. Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Here's what Job says at the end of the book. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. In other words, I will ask, and you will speak. I have heard, excuse me, listen to this. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. Here's what Job says at the end. Job says, God, prior to all of this, I heard of you. I thought I knew you. 
But it wasn't until suffering that I experienced you for myself. Now my eyes have seen you. Now I know what it's like to have a relationship with the living God. And he says, and because of that, I'm ashamed of how I used to live. I'm ashamed of all that I uttered in the midst of my suffering. I sit in dust and I sit in ashes. I repent of who I was. And now I've seen your purposes in my life. And what Job discovers is that even in spite of all of the suffering, his suffering is what allowed him to experience God's purposes. His suffering is what allowed him to draw near to God. And so Job gives God praise for the suffering. Now again, I don't expect any amens there. Because I still expect you're like me and you're going, Lord, I, I get it. But still, Lord, please know. Amen. But what do we do in the midst of our suffering? We show patience. Because patience is ultimately the best demonstration of faith that we can have in the Lord. God, I don't know your purposes. I don't like what I'm going through. But I trust that you're working. I trust that you're moving. I trust that you're faithful. I trust that you're going to make this right. I trust that you're going to be just. I trust that you're going to do what you need to do to bring yourself glory. And that's all I need is trust in the Lord. Amen? James says, faith that perseveres, trust in the justice of God. Faith that perseveres is patient in suffering. And thirdly, here we go, faith that perseveres is truthful in speech. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now you talk about a verse that appears to come out of nowhere. James is, is talking about suffering, and then he starts talking about being truthful in your speech. And, and in all that James has had to say about our speech and our tongue, it shouldn't surprise us that he's talking about it here at the end of his letter. And here's what James says. James says, make sure that you are speaking the truth. Make sure that your yes is yes and your no is no. Do not speak or swear by anything, because if you need an oath to convince someone you're telling the truth, then you're a liar. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. So faith that perseveres, trust in the justice of God. Faith that perseveres is patient in suffering. Faith that perseveres is truthful in speech. And then fourthly, faith that perseveres, prays through difficulties. Look with me now in verses 13 and following. Don't worry, we got plenty of time. I, I, don't want to, I don't want you to miss the importance of what we see in verses 13 through 18. So I want you to follow along with me, and I want to make sure that we understand this text clearly. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Well, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sin, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power at its working. Elijah was a man... With a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for seven years, excuse me, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, here's what I want to say about verses 13 through 18. Be careful. Be careful. There's a lot here that we need to understand so that we do not come away from this text with an unclear idea on prayer. Right? So let's walk through this together and make sure we understand it. In verse 13, Jane gets back to the hurting brothers of verses 7 through 11. And the emphasis of these verses is clearly on prayer. The term pray appears in every verse and twice in verse 16. The hurt here is described is a broad term that is used to speak of all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of sufferings. So if you're spiritually suffering, emotionally, physically, financially, persecution, you name it. If you're suffering, it fits into the context. He tells those who are suffering that they should pray. They should pray. Now, too often times we view prayer as the last thing we need to do. Like when everything else has failed, well, now I'm going to pray. 
Right? That's a terrible idea. James says it's the most important and first thing you should do. James says you should pray, and then you probably ought to just be quiet for a while. And let God work, amen? Because if you get up from your prayer and you try to do it, you're going to get in the way. So just pray. Just pray and pray and pray. And he says, don't just pray when you're suffering. He says, praise God when things are going well. In the good and the bad. You're trusting in God. In the good and the bad, you're praising God. You're worshiping God. You are praying all the time. Again, James says what Paul says. Pray without ceasing. Pray. Pray, pray, and pray. But then he says, if anyone among you is sick, then let him call for the elders of the church. Now, be careful here, because I want to make sure that we understand what this text is saying and what we understand this, make sure we understand what this text is not saying. The term sick used there is a term that speaks to somebody that is sick to the point of bedriddenness. In other words, this is a person that is sick to the point that they can't come to church and gather with the church body as a whole. If they were able to come to church and gather with the church body as a whole, do you know what James would have had told them to do? Let the entire church pray over you. Right? This verse, if you take it incorrectly, you give way too much credit and power to the elders. And I want to speak as an elder, as a pastor. I do not possess special power in prayer. The power lies with God. And my prayer is no different than your prayer. Right? But if the person is bedridden and at home, the entire church can't descend upon them, come into their room and lay hands on them. And so James says, let the leaders of the church be called. I want you to also notice that the leaders have to be what? Say it again. All right, elders, see, everybody misses this, and I want to make sure that you see it. They have to be invited. Let him call for, right? Too many times as a pastor, I've had people mad at me because they didn't show up and pray, right? Listen, I do my best. Sometimes I don't do good. I'll try to show up. The next pastor will try to show up. But if you need the pastor, you know what you ought to do? Call the pastor. Don't sit at home mad because the pastor hasn't showed up. Pick up your phone and call him. We do not see the future. I do not know what you're thinking. Neither will the next guy. I promise you, call the pastor. Don't be mad at the pastor. Call the pastor. Right? That way I can come pray if that's what's needed. Right? But notice, James says, let him call for the elders of the church. Then the elders of the church can come when he's not able to go. But what this text helps us see is the importance of, listen for it, corporate prayer. The church ought to be praying together. The church ought to be praying for the sick. The church ought to be praying for healing. Not just the elders. The elders are going to obviously lead in that. But it is the church as a whole that is going to be praying for those who are in need. But notice what else it says. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So what's the oil? Some have said it's, it's medical. No, it's not. Some have said it's sacramental, it's special oil. No, it's not. It is symbolic. What is, what is it symbolic of? It is symbolic of the presence of God and it is symbolic of the setting apart someone for the work of God. It's just symbolic. That is why you see God do miracles and you see healings happen all throughout the New Testament where oil is never mentioned. Oil is not, necessity, it's not a necessity. If you do it without oil or with oil, it's not going to be more or less effective. Every situation is different. I've taken parts in prayers where we have anointed someone with oil and we have seen God heal and I've taken parts where we've anointed someone with oil and we've not seen God heal. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I just want you to understand the oil, if it is important to the person, then that's great. But it is a symbolic thing that demonstrates or sort of visibly displays the presence of God and the setting apart for God. Right? And so when you anoint a sick person with oil, what you're doing is you're setting them apart for God to work in their lives. Right? You're, you're, you're demonstrating physically and visibly what you believe is going to happen, that God is going to move in this person's life. Right? But just understand, don't make too much of the oil. Because this is the only place that this is, this is prescribed as like this is what you do. Right? You see oil elsewhere when they send out missionaries. Right? But again, you don't see it every time. So, so let's not 
what we don't want to do, what's a danger in just interpreting Scripture, is taking something that appears once and making it the rule for everything. Right? So we want to be careful there. Right? That's free. That's not even part of the sermon. But just as you're studying Scripture, be careful there. Okay? That's not, that's not prescriptive as what we do all the time. And so he says that, that when this is going on, he says you, 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 you do this. But then in verse 15, he says that the prayer of faith will heal the sick. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. Again, be careful here. Because this means more than we might see at first. All right, there, there's three things I want you to see here. Sometimes God does provide healing in the way we hope for. And a brother or sister is restored back to good health. I've seen this, by God's grace, I've got to see this many times in my ministry. It's been awesome. Where, where you pray and God does something that only God can do. Right? And the person is healed, they're restored. Just, just crazy stuff. Right? Just crazy stuff that's happened. Right? And the Lord has done it. That, sometimes that's what God does. Sometimes God's will is for the brother or sister to experience God's grace as sufficient in suffering as it was with Paul who prayed for the Lord to remove his thorn in the flesh. So Paul prayed, God, remove this thorn from my flesh. He didn't ever define for us what it was. But what was God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you. He got no. Now, it wasn't that God said, no, I don't love you. No, I don't care about you. God said, no, I'm using that in your life. Sometimes God uses the suffering for his greater purposes. Sometimes it's because God's working in our lives. And listen, sometimes God's working in someone else's life that's around us. I, I, I'm selfish. I, I'm self-centered. I, I have a hard time seeing what God's doing in my life that's affecting someone else versus just what it's about me, right? And God's had to remind me many times in my life, yeah, you're suffering, but it might be for somebody else's benefit, not your own. So take one for the team, right? Sometimes that's what's going on. Sometimes that's exactly what's happening. So, and then thirdly, sometimes God heals through glorification whereby a person is ushered into eternity. I would argue that's the best kind. Amen. I mean, I just would. Like, I would argue that's, that's the best. Um, there's things that we, we don't want to miss. There's things that we love here about, you know, I, I get it. I don't want to die tomorrow. Don't get me wrong. But I, I do not think I'll be disappointed when I get to heaven, whenever that is. Amen. And so sometimes God heals in different ways. And so, so don't take verse 15 and think every time we pray, every time we anoint with oil, God's going to heal the sick in the way that we desire, in the way that we hope for. And if it didn't happen that way, then either we failed because we didn't do it right or God failed because he's not faithful. Be careful there. That's not the case. Amen? And so then he continues on. He says, all of this happens according to God's will. That's why it's so important that we pray for God's will to be done. And then notice what he says as we continue on. He says, therefore, excuse me, he says, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, be careful here. Because we come away from that and we go, oh man, every time I'm sick, it's because I've committed sin. No, look at the word if. The word if helps us see that all sickness is not directly tied to a particular sin we've committed. You do not have cancer because you've committed a particular sin. Right? That's just not how that works. Right? That word if tells us that that's not the case. He says if the person has committed sin. Now, the word if, though, does show us that God can use the sickness to bring out sin in our lives that needs to be confessed. So, so the if tells us that not all sin is caused, or not all sickness is caused by a particular sin, but it also helps us to see that sometimes God does use the sickness to bring out a sin in our life that needs to be confessed and dealt with. Right? But the word if also helps us understand that there are times when our sickness is directly tied to a particular sin. Now, let me be clear. Scripture makes it perfectly clear that sin and death are in the world as a result of the fall of man in Genesis 3. God said to Adam, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. 
And when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it ushered in sin and death for all mankind. And as Paul says in Romans 6, death and sin has spread to all mankind. It is, it, is, it is worse than COVID, right? It is a global pandemic that has wiped out all of humanity and is continuing to wipe out all of humanity. It is sickness, it is death, and its result is the fall of man in Genesis 3, right? However, James uses the word if, which means that it is possible that a particular sin can cause a particular sickness in God's sovereignty. Now, here's the real question. How do we know? We don't. You don't. And I can, I can promise you this. You will not know in someone else's life. You probably will not know in your own life. But if you're going to know when that's the case, it's going to be only in your own life as the Lord speaks to you. Right? So it may be that one day I've committed a sin and I get this sickness and the Lord tells me and communicates to me, Will, this is why this is happening. This is a part of my judgment to bring about good in your life. The Lord may, may speak to me in that way about my own sin. But the Lord is not going to tell me that the reason Ted is sick is because Ted's committed this sin, therefore I need to go and deal with Ted. Sorry, Ted. That's just not, that's just not how that's going to work, Right? And so understand that the if there is, is a big term that I think we need to understand all that that means. And so James says, listen, if, if, if sin is a part of the culprit, if sin is part of the problem, then what do you do? Ooh, that was weak. That was bad. Hold on. Time out. This is, this is like Christianity 101 here. If you've got sin in your life, what do you do? Okay, there. Okay, let's say that it starts with a C and it ends with unfess. All right, so let's say that louder. If you got sin in your life, what do you do? Confess. Because when we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? All right, we confess. All right, you can pray, yes, but you pray a prayer of confession. You confess, right? And so. That's what James says in verse 16. He says, listen, if you've got sin, if you think your sickness is the result of sin, confess it. Confess it. And then he says in verse 16, confess it. And he says, not just confess it to God, but what does he say? This is weird. It's different. Confess your sins to one another. Where else in the New Testament does it tell us to confess our sins to one another? Nowhere. It doesn't. I'm supposed to confess my sin to the person I sinned against. So if I've sinned against Luke, I confess that to Luke. Right? But it doesn't tell me anywhere else in the New Testament that I'm supposed to confess my sin that's between me and Luke or between me and the Lord to somebody else except for here. Why? Because it helps one another. Because it helps the one another. Because it helps the body of Christ. And so while you don't have to confess you're all of your sins to one another. What James is telling us is that we are in this thing together. Amen? Notice that in verses 13 through 18. This is about prayer, and it's about prayer together. You bring it to the body of Christ. If you can't come to church, the elders come to you. But if you can come to church, you bring your sickness, you bring your sufferings, you bring all of that to the body of Christ so that we do this together in community. Amen? And so, James says, confess your sins to one another. Because the prayer of a righteous man works. So, so use each other. Hold each other accountable. Amen? Counsel, advise, love each other that way. And what I've learned is that when I confess my sin to a brother and sister in Christ, even if it's not something I've committed against them, it helps me. It helps me get it out. That's a good thing. It helps me know I'm not the only one who's done it. That's a good thing, amen? It helps me know that, that other people love me. And they're not going to judge me, but they're going to help me. And so it is a great idea that we would confess our sins to one another. And so confess your sin to one another. Now, in order to confess your sin to somebody else, what do you got to do? You got to trust that person. So be trustworthy. And when someone tells you something in confidence, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't tell that person you're going to keep it yourself and then go tell somebody else. You're a liar when you do that. You're untrustworthy 
And you bring division and disunity to the body of Christ. Don't do that. Amen? So, faith that... Per, or Then notice, he says, prayer works. And he brings in Elijah as an example. Now, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. And what happened? Stop raining. For a couple of days? Three and a half years. It's a long time without rain. Amen? Right? And then Elijah prayed that it would rain, and what happened? It rained. Now, who made it stop raining? God. But who did he use? Elijah. God works through the prayers of his people. It's still God that works. Elijah didn't have the power to stop the rain. It was God. But God works through the prayers of his people. And that's what James is telling us. He's saying God works through prayer. So what do you think we ought to do? We ought to pray. We ought to pray far more than we do. And we ought to pray for each other far more than we do. We ought to come to the church and ask for prayer far more than we do. Prayer works. Let's stop trying to solve problems absent of prayer. And let's start trying to solve problems through prayer. Amen? That's the only way that our faith is going to last to the end. Faith that perseveres, trust in the justice of God. Faith that perseveres is patient in suffering. Faith that perseveres is truthful in speech. Faith that perseveres prays through difficulties. And lastly, faith that perseveres demonstrates love for sinners. Look in verse 19. We come to the end and James says this, My brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Paul's there. Who's he talking to in verse 19? My brothers, the church, believers. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here's the key. We persevere to the end by doing it together. Perseverance comes through the body of Christ. The reality is, most likely all of us at some point in our life, in the past or in the future, we will wander from the truth. We may wander for a moment. We may wander for a week. We may wander for a month. We may wander for a year. But when we wander, what do we need to do? We need someone to come get us. You say, well, I, I, just, I don't want to butt in their business. I, I want to mind my own business. Well, you don't love them. You say, well, I don't, I don't want to bother them. Then you don't love them. You say, well, I, I just, you know, eh, it's awkward. I don't really enjoy those kind of conversations. You don't love them. Amen. We, we say that as if that's loving. And it's the most unloving thing we can do. Why? Because their soul hangs in the balance. James says, bring them back into the fold. And he says, you will save their soul. Right? He says, it will, it will cover a multitude of sins. In other words, whatever they've done will be forgiven. Whatever they've done will be dealt with. But you've got to go love them enough to bring them back. So I, I would just encourage us, let's, let's love each other enough to commit to one another right now that if one of us wonders, we'll go get them. Right? You have permission to come get me if I wonder. I, I'm not going to enjoy it, but by God's grace, come get me. Amen? I'm going to need that, and you're going to need that. And so let's make sure that we love each other enough to come get one another because that's how faith perseveres to the end. It perseveres through the body of Christ that, that goes out and gets one another. And James says this is true for the brother. In other words, this is true for the person who has already trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because through all of this, faith that perseveres is faith that is genuine. In other words, faith 
that has come to the place in their life where they have acknowledged that they have sinned and they have fallen far short of God's glory and that we have no hope of dealing with our sin alone. The only hope we have is by trusting in Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross, the one who paid the price of death that we owed, the one who victoriously rose from the dead that we celebrated last Sunday, amen, that overcame death in the grave and that secured our hope of eternal life. The only faith that will persevere is genuine faith that trusts in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine faith that comes before the Lord and says, I'm a sinner, I confess you as my Lord, and now I want to follow you in my life. That's who James is writing to. Let's make sure that's who we are. Will you pray with me? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I've got two quick questions for you. Number one, do you have genuine faith? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you confessed your sins to Him and have you committed to following Him in your life? If you haven't, today can be the day that you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to stand to sing the hymn of invitation. And as we do, I'm going to invite you to come. And just say, Will, I want to give my life to Christ. And I'll tell you everything that you need to know so that you can give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Secondly, believers, let me ask you this. Do you have faith that perseveres? Are you trusting in the justice of God? Are you being patient in the midst of inevitable suffering? Are you being truthful in your speech? Are you praying through your difficulties? And are you demonstrating love for fallen brothers, love for sinners? This altar is open. If the Lord's brought about conviction, you can confess it. You can come, you can pray this altar. We've been told to pray in the good and in the bad. Maybe you want to just come to this altar and praise God for something good he's doing in your life. That you come as the Lord leads. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And we pray now that your will would be done in us and through us during this invitation. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.